This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. The whole story of it is written in those brief, striking words of John. He came for his own, and his own received him not. A corrupted priesthood. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We are going to be hearing a sermon from G. Campbell Morgan. This sermon was likely preached in London, England, in the 1930s sometime. Troy, we have some new Patreons to shout out on the show. We are continually blown away by people's hearts and uh, their desire to want to support the Revive Studios and the content we make here. Um, These past week, we had Neil and Steven and Barbara come on board as uh, our Patreons. They get an ad-free feed. Um, We'll get some bookmarks signed and mailed out to them, some uh, stickers as well, the little sticker pack in there for that. So we, again, really want to appreciate the people that support us. Every episode, we also try to read a comment that we received on social media. Uh, This week's was a tweet. It was actually from Jared Longshore, who was on our episode last week. Longshore! Enjoyed being on the Revive Thoughts podcast. He said, with a link out, if you have not listened to last week's episode with Jared Longshore and the great Jonathan Edwards sermon that attached to it, you should definitely go check those out. And we were grateful to have him on. Joel, if you're like me and you're reading through the Bible in the chronological plan, you you may kind of remember this moment. You're beginning the study of Leviticus, and Leviticus, a lot of laws, a lot of rules, and you're getting those laws and rules, and you're hearing about the future of the tabernacle, and suddenly there's like narrative in here, and Aaron's being made the priest, and then out of nowhere, boom, God kills Nadab and Abihu, and you're kind of like, whoa, what, what just happened? That's how I always approach it, because I do this every couple years, and every time just suddenly Nadab and Abihu are dead. And at this point, I'm starting to expect it, but I'm still surprised by it because it just is not what you think. And it's always seemed like just this tough moment where God's just being very strict. But G. Campbell Morgan really gives a great explanation for this passage. And in in this moment where the next line of priests is getting consecrated and we're going to find out who's coming after Aaron, it's important that the right man comes in to deal with that transition uh, for Israel, but also for ministries and churches. And in a lot of ways, Morgan he kind of lives as this bridge between those great preachers of the 1800s and one of the great preachers of the late 1900s, which we'll get to at the end of this intro. He knew a lot about kind of passing the torch. So when he speaks about this, pay attention. He kind of understands what he's saying. Yeah, G. Campbell Morgan. He was born December 1863 on a farm in England. And I feel like that's you know, if you if you were born in the 1800s on this show, I feel like you're you 80% possibility you grew up on a farm and the other uh 20% you're either a lawyer or a banker like from a yes. family of a lawyer or a banker or something like that. A lot of farmers in the 1800s for sure. This is also that pocket, that era. Troy and I, you know, sometimes we talk about like if you could time travel back to one era and and see, you know, the the preachers of that era, what would it be and England in the late 1800s during that industrial revolution, early 1900s, that that like 50 year window between like 1880 and 1920 or something like that. Yeah, 
that would be i wouldn't want to live there but i'd love <laughs> to take a vacation summer through maybe right yeah, yeah yeah there are so many incredible uh men of god during that era and we're going to learn more about one of them here today during this introduction here his father was part of the plymouth brethren which is the same group that george Mueller belonged to his father became a baptist minister after a while morgan he didn't have great health growing up as a child he wasn't able to attend the local school in his town and so he was tutored at home and his life was pretty average overall until he was 10 years old and he saw dale moody preaching on one of his first campaigns through england and this left a lasting and powerful impression on him. And uh, a few years later, at the age of 13, he was seen preaching in a local country church. So he's already 13 years old. He's already a minister. He he's, knows he's already he's going. fallen into the shoes. I, I also love, another thing that we love on this show is when we get to see one preacher kind of affect another. Like I remember when our Oswald Chambers episode, it was seeing Spurgeon preach that brought him to Christ, that brought him to go out and do what he did. And I see a very similar story in G. Campbell Morgan where that D.L. Moody moment changes everything and he goes on to live. And you can see him passing again that torch on at the end of this episode. I think it's really cool. He became known as, quote, a boy preacher for a few years as he would preach on Sundays and holidays on a regular basis this next part i'm going to be honest is confusing they were kind of conflicting accounts so i'll do the best i can so on the one hand he said he had a crisis of faith around 19 until he was about 21 years old and at this time he was kind of teaching at a jewish school and he would do that till he was 23 and so he wasn't sure if he believed what he believed but on the other hand in 1883, at the age of 20, he also helped work with D.L. Moody and bring uh, his tour back to England again and really help them get like spots they were going to go to and was very supportive. And, you know, they got to see each other and know each other a little bit. That would be at the same time he was also supposed to be having the crisis of faith. And yet, while he was going through this, D.L. Moody was so impressed with him that later on, because he remembered him, he would invite him to speak in America. Regardless of how these two things were happening at the same time, what brought him out of that crisis of faith, he said, the Bible found me, and that he suddenly found supreme satisfaction and joy in the word and in following God. And from that point on, he said the Bible soothed his troubled soul, and from the age of 23, he quit teaching at that school, and he became a pastor. Yeah, the Bible found him. I love that quote, and I feel like that is a good representation of what we see in the rest of his life. Like, yeah. he was driven by genuine joy that came from the word of God, and it made a huge effect on everyone around him, and it, it, it drove his personal studies. He was never formally trained. He never went to a seminary, and we do see this a lot in this era, especially with some of the more popular ministers. It makes you wonder if there's something behind that, some type of correlation, but Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, uh, we talked about Samuel P. Jones. All these people didn't go to seminary. They didn't have any formal theological training. They were self-trained based on their own drive and their own research. You could see in this era, maybe I think more than any other, non-trained people just having mass followings like crazy. Yeah, and who knows, maybe we're overlooking a statistic of people that you know were more harmful than good, but we do see um, a lot of great people come out of this era that prove to have sound theology. Uh, Next week's episode, we'll cover another one of those, yeah, actually. Yeah, you know, exactly, yeah. He quickly uh, gained the nickname the Prince of Expositors, and he would become incredibly well-known in the 1900s in London. His preaching style was was different. Again, this is turn of the century, so think, you know, your, your showmanship. Think, 
I, I want to say carnival barker, but like not, not, not a literal carnival barker, but, uh, that, that kind of, you're projecting your voice, you're trying to get people's attention. That was a big style at this time. And he didn't do that. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't eloquent, but yet he captivated audiences. There's a, a quote, a, a, a different evangelist that was describing Morgan. And he says, quote, He has no grace of gesture, no showy eloquence, no spectacular delivery. He was lank, he was lean, angular, he was wholly average. He used no charts, he used no blackboard, no pictures, no screens, no gadgets of any kind. His dress was simple, nothing to attract or divert attention. His tremendous power was what he did with the word of God. In five minutes, I was in another world. And not because of any grandiose or charm of speech. I forgot the people around me, forgot the speaker, forgot everything but the wonders of the world into which I had been led. I went home dazed with wonder and the effectiveness of the Bible alone as the source of convincing preaching. And we know that this is probably a true statement. He's not just being kind or humble or making a point. Um, something interesting about Morgan is that when he was going to be ordained and when he was going to be ordained and was passing his test to be a minister, his trial sermon that he wrote and that he kind of gave, he did not pass the person who was supposed to, he was like, this is not a very good sermon, not a very good <laughs> preacher. Um, so people didn't come to Morgan for the show. It wasn't something, it was something else that drew them into his sermons. He had this unique love of scripture. When one man asked Morgan, how do you study scripture? How do you get ready to read the word for people? And he said, if I told you, I don't think you would likely do it. And he kind of pressed me. He said, what do you do? What is it that you do that's special? And he said, I read the book of the Bible that I'm going to be preaching, you know, through and on at least 40 to 50 times before I actually really start to study and break it down. I wanted, he wanted to be sure that his own mind had been properly saturated, he said, in the word of God. And he knew that he was being led by the spirit and not his own convictions or, or the ideas of other people. He was also a, a long-winded preacher, even for that era when radio was starting to become popular People weren't really wanting to sit for long periods as much anymore, except for Morgan, who would preach for an hour and a half. And his audiences were known for bringing um, into the church notepads and pens so they wouldn't miss a thing he'd say as he'd preach for an hour and a half to packed churches. And that may sound exhausting, but that is a minute fraction of his accomplishments in his life. In 1896, he would receive his first invitation to come and preach in the United States, and his travels would take him back and forth across the Atlantic 54 times. Troy, do you know how long it, in the late 1800s it would take to sail across the Atlantic? How many? How long? Do you know? I I'd have no, a month? Six, six weeks. So a little over a month. A, a month, a month and a half. 54 times. If my math is correct, which it probably isn't, that's like that's over five years at sea. Man. During his lifetime. That seems just like, traveling. Is that really five? Right. So No, over, yeah, I could see that. Six weeks. Six times. weeks. I believe that's the math, right? We got we got fifty four transatlantic travels. It's okay, at least 50, five years. It's gotta be a lot. That definitely I could see how it might it's pushing six years, I think. That's crazy. Well, that's what it said. And that would be twenty seven now, to give him fairness, that's twenty seven times back and forth, right? But that's a lot of trips. Sure, that's just one way, but maybe still. maybe some planes at the end? I don't know. I mean, maybe. It could I don't, be I don't know if he, this was like he died like in the nineteen forty five. Forty five. Maybe some of those are some plane flights. I don't know. I don't know if 
Maybe I don't know if a like commercial flight was a was. If a, you a thing. know, listener, who, you who are listening, how many? Yeah. <laughs> what the airplane situation like, My great grandfather yeah. flew his first was on his first commercial flight in 1938 or something. Yeah, let us know. Well, that's crazy. I cannot believe that. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. Morgan took over uh, for Moody at his church there. He then returned to London and he got involved in the Mission Society and preached at different churches, but mostly at Westminster Chapel. And in the middle of all this, he wrote over 70 books. He preached over 23,000 sermons. And when he came to the U.S. and would preach in the U.S., he would draw such crowds that the city would have to to coordinate with the police to to control traffic and barricade roads and whatnot because he was drawing such big crowds. He was a very popular minister on both sides of the Atlantic. In a lot of ways, he was much like Moody, the man he was once inspired and converted by. One of the things that might be the most impressive was that he was also a very dedicated father. I mean, you imagine just the five years at sea and all the books and all the things he was doing. You you think who has time for parents and kids, but despite how busy he must have been preaching and writing, his children absolutely loved him. All four of his sons would become ministers, one even replacing him in the pulpit when he retired. And somehow he also found time, I don't know how he did this, to teach at a seminary in Los Angeles and another school in Boston and he was a pastor in Philadelphia. I, I, like I said, I do not know how he did this as one human being. And I, we've read about a lot of busy people on this show. I don't know how that a person could have literally done all this and still managed what was seems to be on paper a really great family life. This guy was incredible. And I can only imagine God was just helping him in all gotta of this. Got to be, yeah. Yeah, that's got to be a God thing because that is... It's too much. It's too much. For... <laughs> it was hard to write down. Like, I'm running out of room on the script to continue putting his accomplishments in. Finally, uh, towards the end of his life, Westminster Chapel, who uh, where he pastored at for several years, they asked him to come back and pastor there once again. The replacement pastor that they had put in place after he left Westminster, he was a great, great pastor, great person, but he was a bit of a broken man. He fought in World War One and was still pretty haunted by some of the things that he had seen there, and it was kind of affecting how he was able to lead the church. So so Campbell came back to the church and pastored it for another eight years there. But he was getting old himself after those eight years of pastoring, and uh, when he was trying to mitigate duties and, and bring in some help, he asked Martin Lloyd-Jones to help him, and he had no idea that Martin Lloyd-Jones would uh, go on to be one of the great spiritual lights of the 20th century as as he mentored him uh, into that pastoral position but uh, he just has he he has so many connections to so many different 
men of God throughout uh, his short time on this earth. He was friends with F.B. Meyer. He was friends with Spurgeon. Obviously, he was friends with Moody. He raised a great family who would also go on to ministry themselves. And his protege would end up being, like we said, one of the, one of the great lights of the 20th century. It all stems from his great love from the word of God. This sermon he preaches about how we should approach God. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took each of them his censer and put fire therein and laid incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And there came out fire from before the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. To understand the story of Nadab and Abihu, so far as it has any value for us, it is necessary to recognize the situation in its widest context. While the preacher of olden times once declared that the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth and so indicated the folly of gazing off in the distance while the near and the immediate is neglected. But it is true that sometimes the near things will be most woefully misunderstood unless we take in the wider range of vision and see how they interact with it. That is definitely the case in such a story as that of Nadab and Abihu. Mixed as it is with the code of laws and being a brief historical narrative telling when the people were coming to know of their national existence and at the very commencement of the observance of all the symbolic ritual which had been provided for them, two men ministering in the holy place were suddenly smote with death. We must begin at the divine standpoint in order to understand this swift and fiery judgment. We must not merely see Aaron and his sons, not merely the encamped tribes of the children of Israel, but the whole wide world. And we must see that the world is loved by God. We must remind ourselves as we approach this Old Testament story that the declaration of the New Testament revelation was as true then as when the New Testament writer penned it. That declaration that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All the peoples were loved by God. And all of them he thought about as he enacted his plan. It was for all of them he worked in all his dealings with the Hebrew people. This nation had been created by God for the blessing of that world which he loved. Through strange and devious ways had the Hebrew people been brought to this hour. With the infinite majesty of perfect workmanship, which we sometimes see as almost unutterable slowness. God had moved to that moment. 
From the hour in which he spoke in the soul of one man in Ur of the Chaldeans and called him to the high venture of faith to become a pilgrim, seeking the establishment of the divine order in the world and the building of the city of God. Through those strange and terrible times of the history of his son, through the long sword sojourn in Egypt, and now in bringing the people to himself and so creating a nation. Not in order to have just one people upon which to lavish his love, but in order to have a nation through which he might manifest his love for all the nations of the world. So we come to the third circle, an inner circle, the circle of the priesthood. This circle of those who, in this wonderful plan, had been set apart for specific work. The work of mediating between these people comprising the new created nation and their God. The men whose work should be that of intercession. The men who were to be admitted to the holy place to stand in the presence of God and there to intercede on behalf of men. The men who were to move out from the holy place into the presence of the multitudes and there intercede with men on behalf of God. The mediating priesthood at the center of the national life and that national life at the center of all the world. The nation he created for the world and the priesthood he created for the nation. The world needed one thing supremely, to live by the law of God. All souls are mine, said a later prophet of people, his by creation and by preservation. All men are perfectly known to his heart. His heart is the heart of love. His law for men is the only perfect law of their lives. The world therefore needs and waits for the law of God. Within that wider world, there now existed the nation. Its specific preparation for the fulfillment of the divine purpose lay in the fact that the law of God had been given directly to them, that they might know it, that they might obey it, that they might be transformed by it into the very likeness of their God and so reveal to the world the breath, beauty, and benevolence of the divine kingdom. Yet again, at the heart of the nation, associated with its symbolic ritual and worship, there existed this priesthood having as its final responsibility the need for the strictest following of the law of God, the entire abandonment to the will of God, in order that it might mediate between God and his own nation, and that in order that the nation incarnating his will might be the means of blessing to the nations lying beyond. What Nadab and Abihu did that day must be measured by these larger issues. For a disobedient priesthood means a corrupted nation, and a corrupted nation means a wronged world. This indeed is the story of the ultimate temporary failure of the Hebrew people, corrupted in its priesthood, therefore in its national life, 
therefore failing to fulfill its mission in the world. The final example of the failure is that of the rejection of the Messiah. The whole story of it is written in those brief, striking words of John. He came for his own, and his own received him not. A corrupted priesthood, a Sadducean, demoralized, departed from the place of loyalty to God. A corrupted nation under the influence of such a priesthood resulted in the refusal of the one toward whom the whole plan had moved. And therefore, so far as the Hebrew people were concerned, the world was wronged and robbed and degraded. The world triumph of Messiah will not result from Israel's realization, but from God's overruling grace. Israel itself will presently be restored. The triumph will be the triumph of grace. In view of these wider responsibilities, we can understand the immediateness and severity of this swift judgment at the very commencement of the national life. As to the exact form of the strange fire which was offered, speculation is unnecessary and valueless. The facts are sufficiently clear for our instruction. They offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And there came forth fire from before the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Men appointed to the most sacred service rendered the service, but rendered the service in disobedience and were consumed. We are far removed from the Hebrew ritual. The chapter which was read in our hearing was a little wearisome to some of us. It seemed almost meaningless, a chapter of offerings, goats and rams, ritual and ceremonies. And we sighed with relief that we had escaped these things, and in some senses, quite properly so. But let us not forget the illuminative word of the New Testament concerning these things, for they were the shadow of the good things to come. While it is perfectly true that they were only shadows and that when that is come with a substance, the shadow is of no value. Nevertheless, the shadow demonstrates the substance. There can be no shadow apart from substance. The photograph demonstrates the person of whom it is but a shadow. You will hold the photograph and look at it and love to look at it until he comes of whom it is the shadow. And then you are independent of the shadow, but the shadow demonstrates the substance. For there could have been no such picture apart from the person. We are living under the covenant of the substance. We have nothing to do with this ritual, these ceremonies, censers, fires, and this material incense. We are inclined, it may be, to boast in our freedom from these things. Let our boasting be intelligent. We are set free from the shadows only because the substance comes. Those who live in the presence of the substance have a far greater responsibility than those who live in the shadow. All of which means not that the teaching of this Old Testament story has no application to us, but that the service which we are called on to render is more sacred. And the responsibilities are more solemn, and consequently the impact of this story on the soul of an honest man will be a forceful one. 
As Christ is greater than Moses, so is the responsibility of the priests of the new covenant greater than that of Nadab and Abihu. Let us then with all seriousness consider the teaching of this story in regard to two matters. First, the sin which was so bad that it was judged through the fire that came out and devoured Nadab and Abihu. And second, the responsibility which that judgment reveals. Let us consider what the sin of Nadab and Abihu was externally first, then what it was inspirationally, and finally what it was influentially. What was it externally? Let us at once admit that it is difficult to answer that question. These men were in the holy place arrayed in holy garments for actual service, for that is the meaning of the phrase, they drew near and carried them in their coats out of the camp. And they were rendering holy service. It was a great hour in the religious life of the nation when the glory of the Lord was manifested. And the people were hushed and awed into the very earnest heart of worship. It was then in the holy place arrayed in holy garments, occupied in holy service, that these men sinned the sin which was immediately punished by death. How are we to account for it? Let us glance on to a later chapter in this book of Leviticus. In the 16th chapter, we have an account of the ceremonial arrangements for the great day of atonement. And in the course of that account, we find instructions given to the priests concerning their entering into the holy place and the burning of incense. He will take a censer full of coals of fire off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. A remarkable fact is that the chapter giving instructions concerning the Day of Atonement and how the high priest must enter in and offer incense is prefaced with these words. And the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Here then, perhaps, we have some light on what happened that day. I think it is not an inaccurate deduction that in that hour of religious Um, enthusiasm, these men placed on their censers fire that they obtained from somewhere other than the altar of God. They did the right thing in the wrong way. An amazing fact. So amazing that we are at first inclined to revolt against the consequences. Let us, however, ponder the matter more carefully. How did these men do the right thing in the wrong way? It is never the act That is the important thing, but rather the reason that lies behind the act. God is a God of justice, and he weighs actions by investigating motives. What lay behind this strange act that seems to be so harmless? The fact that in high enthusiasm, these men rushed in their holy garments into the holy place and took fire other than that which came from the altar of God shows that they were yielding themselves to the wrong motives. I crave your very patient listening or we will miss the very core of this matter. Was it wrong 
Was it a wrong motive to desire to burn incense before the Lord? It depends on the reason for the desire. Perhaps it was excitement that made them careless in the moment of the divine provision and divine requirement. There is a dark hint in this story. I would not care to overemphasize it, but there is no escape from the suggestiveness of the fact that subsequently the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine nor strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, that you die not. It will be a statute forever. It is at least significant that the solemn warning is placed in immediate relation with the story of the death of Nadab and Abihu. It at least suggests that when they went in, that they may have done so under the influence. Maybe they were not drunk, but had been drinking wine, forgetting the necessity in the exercise of their holy office of having their spirits clear of everything that could influence them in any direction, to be under the complete control of God when they served. In the excitement of passionate desire to take part in the awful hour of divine manifestation, they snatched strange fire and offered it. And fire from God consumed them. It may be that it was merely carelessness. They did not pay sufficient attention to the divine requirements. All seemed so harmless, whatever the motive, whether it was excitement, carelessness, or convenience. But these men were acting in their own initiative and not under the control of God. God was dethroned as unaware to themselves as it was. And they were enthroned. And that occurred in the holy place. At the center of the religious life of the nation, the priest himself had failed to believe and obey. It is not said that Nadab and Abihu were lost. In all probability, they were straight into heaven. We have nothing to do with the matter of their individual salvation. At the heart of national life, it was necessary that the lesson should immediately be impressed on the priest and on the people, that men must do God's work in God's way. There must be no deflection from the divine appointment and arrangement. Sin in the priesthood will produce sin in the people. If the priesthood yields to the false authority of some passion, some method, then they will exercise false authority and inspire false actions and false converts. All the following history of the Israelites is full of illustrations of that great principle. And we may tell the story of the Hebrew people by declaring that they sought the divine goals but in a wrong way, and consequently never found the goal they sought. The story speaks eloquently to us. It deals, first of all, with the question of, do the ends justify the means? It exposes and gives the lie to the whole heresy, which is the heart and soul of that idea that they do. That the end justifies the means that in order to reach the divine goal, we may travel and do so in any way we want. That in order to accomplish the, the divine purposes, we are allowed to choose any method. The essential lie is that heresy is that the right end is ever reached by the wrong means, 
It never can be. It never has been. It never will be. For the moment, it may seem that change from the strict path of the divinely marked out plan may not matter much because we are arriving at the same goal. But watch the long plan go, and we discover that there is never any arrival to God's plan. We cannot build the temple of truth on a foundation of fraud. We cannot erect the palace of purity on a foundation of corruption. We cannot accomplish the building of the city of God unless we are true to the divinely prepared plan. We cannot glorify God by incense whose smoke arises from false fire, from fire which has not been taken from the altar of sacrifice. Therefore, to adopt any method in worship or in work which is departed by even a hair from the divine is to defeat the purpose of effort. We learn from this story that the test of means is intent or motive. The motive of reaching God's goal is not enough. The motive which pushes an action, which in itself is born of thinking or planning or arranging, which leaves God out of account, is in itself no good. And though it looks towards God's goal, it never travels there. There are thousands of men today in England who actually desire the coming of the kingdom of God, but they are doing nothing to bring it about. They pray for it. They would be willing to vote for it if we could have an election on the basis of its propositions. But in their own lives, in their own planning and arrangements of business, of dwelling places, of friendships, they forget God. Then no voting will help God. And no effort that they may, that they may make will bring the kingdom of God any nearer God refuses to be anything but the ultimate energy in the life of any man. He must be there every moment and must be consulted immediately. It is not enough to join with the multitudes on the great day and offer any fire in order to glorify God. The fire must be fire God appointed. It must be fire that comes from the altar. To us in this age, the will of God is being revealed, not by laws written on tables of stone, not by sign or symbol or ritual, not by any order of priests within the church, nor by order of prophets. Within the sacred enclosure of the church today, there are those whom God has called to prophetic work, but it is ever that of interpretation of the last and final speech of God to men through his incarnate Son. Therefore I say, to us the will of God is revealed, not even by the prophet, but by the ever-present Spirit who takes the things of Christ, which are the things of God, and interprets them to us. We are not to be bound by the hard and fast requirements of an ecclesiastical system, we are not to be bound by some particular form of ritual. We are to wait before every action and before every enterprise 
and to inquire in the very moment of our desire to serve God, what is the mind of the Lord? And we are to seek the answer from the ever-present Spirit of God. To us, to cease to wait is to cease to go. To go without waiting before the Lord for instruction is to never go at all. Moreover, it is to fall under the displeasure of God and to be in danger of being consumed by the fire of God. And that in the interest of the world for which Christ died and which God loves. To state the responsibility which that swift judgment reveals to us is to take the story and look at it from the standpoint which is revealed in the last words of my text. This is the lesson which the judgment teaches. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is it that the Lord spoke, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me, and before all the people I will be glorified. All I have been trying to say is that before all people he will be glorified. That is the ultimate purpose. And therefore, he will be sanctified in them that come near him. Those who stand in his presence for service must be those who have enthroned him. Those who inquire at his gates, those who obey his words, he will be sanctified in them. They will be the sanctuary in which he dwells within within them. He will be sanctified, enthroned, inquired of, obeyed. And for what purpose? Before all the people, I will be glorified. God must be glorified in the priests who represent him. God must be glorified in the service which the priest is rendering. God must be glorified in his own work which must be done in his way, God must be glorified through that work which he will most assuredly do when his laws are observed. The teaching of the story of responsibility is that in our worship and in our work, we are not merely to seek for the ultimate, far-distant realization of divine glory. We are to seek that glory in the methods we employ. We believe in the far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves, but it is not enough to desire that event and then proceed to attempt to realize it in our own way and by our own wit and wisdom. The one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves can be realized by God only in fellowship with man, by men in fellowship with God. The deflection of the servant of God by a single hairbreadth from the divinely marked path becomes ultimately an infinite and abysmal distance between that worker and God. When the skillful engineer drives his tunnel through the mountain, missing by half an inch at the commencement, what does it matter? Everything. For the next half inch will follow the first one and the third to the second. So here at the beginning, two sons of Aaron, in undue excitement of wine or carelessly or for convenience and greater speed, 
did enthrone their thinking above the divine command. And fire from the Lord consumed them in order that the priests might know forever that they themselves must believe and obey if the work of God is to be completed. This teaching may be applied by all Christian workers. Allow me to make the broadest of all applications. The church of God must not only be true to the work of God in the world as to the general plan. She must also be true to the work of God in the world as to the particular methods which he ordains. Surely, as we imagine that, we can improve on the divine method and the instructions left to us by our Lord himself and by his holy apostles in these sacred writings of the scriptures. Then, so surely, we will find that while we are desiring to the accomplishment of the divine purpose, yet all the while we are preventing it. That in the solemn lesson concerning our responsibility. This is without question a story full of solemnness. It gives pause to all who are called to service as it reminds us of the necessity for a constant and sustained loyalty to God in our methods of service. It calls the Christian church ever and ever to halt in her progress in order that she may readjust her relationships with her Lord. It calls us to examine every organization that is springing up, lest haply we find that they are not in accordance with the divine method. Even though they desire the accomplishment of the divine purpose, I would not be surprised that if the church would give herself to such serious introspection and readjustment, she would not find many organizations which are merely fungus growths sapping her life and contributing nothing to the work of God. When we turn from the larger outlook to the more specific, with what awful seriousness does this words speak to us of our work for God and of the seriousness of the inspiration of our work for God. The dark, appalling hint of the story needs emphasizing in all its applications. The worker of God must never touch God's work in the strength of any false stimulant. To attempt God's work under the stimulus of passion for fame or desire for notoriety is to burn false fire on the altar. To us, I repeat, specific rules are no more. But the living and ever-present Spirit of God is with us, and the greatest matter in all our Christian service is that we seek to know His will and submit ourselves to His direction. Yet I cannot end at that point. There's one other word that must be uttered, so solemn in the story that not only is it calculated to give us pause, it is liable to make us so full of fear that we hardly dare touch our work. That is exactly how Ithamar and Eliezer felt, that they dared not continue their work. Moses instituted in 
investigation, inquired why they had been disobedient and failed to observe things of privilege within the holy place. And the answer was that the day had been so appalling that they were afraid. And in grace, on that explanation, they were excused for the failure. But I think the story of Ithamar and Eleazar is told that we are warned that even though it is a terrible thing in many senses to do God's work in the world, we must not neglect it. We have no right to say that because the responsibility is serious, we dare not approach it. He has made us a kingdom of priests, and it is not merely the saving of our own souls that is in his view, but the need of the world beyond ourselves. Therefore, with all seriousness and with calm and humble spirits, we must take up our work, praying always to be delivered from the sin of burning false fire in the presence of God. I love the part of the sermon where he kind of goes like, what you thought was this not big moment. Look at how God has unraveled this plan, starting from Abraham, goes through Egypt, goes to the wilderness. Here's the moment where we get to the priesthood and, oh, no, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu are not acting correctly. We need to start that over. And uh, this is too important to God's plan. And it kind of made me think too, sometimes things that we think aren't important actually are very, very important in the eyes and sight of God. And we need to make sure that when we approach God, looking at history and life as God does, seeing the far bigger picture and the far bigger things, don't let little things slip. Don't be like Nadab and Abihu who kind of approach God a little nonchalantly, a little bit unseriously, and a little bit disrespectfully. But make sure that when we're taking everything serious, everything God has called us to do, make sure we are approaching him with that reverence that he deserves. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jeremiah Wheelersburg. Jeremiah is an author, a preacher, a podcaster from Aurora, Colorado. Jeremiah writes under the pen name J.N. Wheels and has been preaching and teaching the Bible since he was 17 years old. His most recent book is called The Minister, The Ministry, and Me. You can watch or listen to Jeremiah's podcast with the same title as his book, or also known as the 3M Podcast for short. You can find out more about JN Wheels and what he's up to at jnwheels.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we encourage you to tell a friend. Let somebody else know that you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Our show grows best by word of mouth when other people hear about it. And when you say, hey, this is a good sermon. Hey, this is a good uh, story. Why don't you check it out? That is by far the best way to let people know about what we're doing. And you have been letting people know we can see the growth and we're very appreciative and we just ask that you would continue to do that because it, it makes all the difference in the world uh, our advertisements all of our best marketing strategies do not compare to you just telling somebody about it and if you comment or leave a comment on social media anywhere that you see this episode uh, you may be read on the next episode of revive thoughts this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts <laughs> 
This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.